Hello and welcome to Econoday Unplugged on Tuesday, the 17th of December 2019. Mark Pender is stateside, rehearsing his highly acclaimed hip-hop version of Jingle Bells. And I'm Jeremy Hawkins, mince pie in hand here in London. So, with the end of the 2019 trading year rapidly approaching, financial markets have been buoyed by an apparent phase one trade agreement between the US, as well as fresh hope that European headlines may soon be no longer dominated by Brexit. Plenty of room for disappointment there then. Still, the Fed seems cautiously happy with the way things are going. So, Mark, was there yes. much to take away from last week's FOMC meeting? Um I guess that, you know, the takeaway is that uh, they're uh, neutral right now, and the outside bias is uh, toward further uh, rate cuts. Um, yet that uh, jobs report that we were talking about last week that preceded that meeting pretty well uh, sealed uh, any chance uh, for a, a rate cut. Um, the data, it's interesting. Um, the, um, the data has been uh, mixed uh, here. But there has been some acceleration, I think a little bit in contrast to the global uh, data in general. Just this morning, we had a real uh, serious run of data that the Fed would certainly uh, look at as justifying uh, stepping back. Um, it, and really, it's centered in the housing sector. The new home sector has just really literally taken off. Uh, taken off. We had housing starts and permits. Uh, the graphs are just uh, shooting up. And this was preceded yesterday, uh, yesterday, Monday, by the housing market index, which is compiled by by the home builders, the nation's home builders. And this has been uh, a series for uh, since the mid '80s. And these and the readings we just got. And and this has been kind of um, a subdued report. For the last year or so, uh, a little bit of life in 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 recent months, but then just it took off to uh, record highs on Monday, really signaling. Uh, and this is measuring optimism among so, home. So, what do you think? Is, is this sort of a lagged response to you know, low mortgage rates, or is there something else going on here? Well, it's uh, certainly low mortgage rates. What it, uh, I think, the central thing is is the traffic component in that report. Home builders are reporting significant increases in in prospective buyers, uh, kind of to record uh, levels. Um, and I think this uh, not only reflects the uh, low mortgage rates; it reflects the very strong mark, uh, uh, labor market, but it also reflects pent-up demand. Housing has been subdued, this expansion, for the last 10 years. The subprime uh, building bubble uh, t- uh, it, it, that, you know, c- created the, or uh, mm-hmm. triggered the, the recession was, um, uh, you know, pulled down uh, uh, or pulled forward, excuse me, at that time, uh, uh, home building activity. And so it's kind of been built in home demand, and it's kind of been building up. We haven't really seen it yet for resales. They're still kind of flat, but they're bound to come up as, if people are trading to, into new houses. Uh, but this is contrasting with uh, the manufacturing sector, which is uh, we had an industrial production report this morning, which was very, very strong, but it, follow, and it, but it was strike-related. It was skewed by two prior months of, of steep weakness tied to the GM um, strike. And uh, so overall, can you, can you sort of put a straight line through that? So, how much of a distortion was caused by the strike effects? Do we know? Yeah, I think if you look at the year-on-year change uh, in this latest month, uh, total volumes, industrial production measures volumes, it was down zero point eight percent. So that's a you know still a, a, an indication, and, and that's in line with everything else, especially the ISM, which is gets a lot of uh, uh, reading over here, mm-hmm. and they've been uh, below fifty. They've been um, uh, reporting contraction and expansion lows for uh, several months, and now we have this uh, Boeing. 
uh, situation, the 737 MAX now. Uh, and aircraft makes up, you know, 5 to 10 percent of the uh, factory sector. So uh, a significant uh, downturn there and an unfilled orders, canceled orders. There'll be uh, significant effects uh, uh, in this. So it's a, still a, mix, a mixed picture, which kind of is what the Fed is is kind of right. yeah, uh, warning everyone about anyway. Do, so. do we know how long the, the Boeing shutdown is going to last for? This, the no, 737? No, I, 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 this story is still unfolding. It just came right. out. It just came out yesterday. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, um, uh, if if we do get these cancellations, uh, which would seem inevitable. Uh, and they did sell quite a few of them. Uh, are they going to go into other Boeing's? Is this going to help uh, Airbus? Um, and uh, so it, that's an you know that is a negative factor. It's not is I don't think would be as severe as a GM strike apparently proved to be. Uh, which was very significant. We also had Canadian sales, uh, manufacturing sales in October were sharply lower. It was a spillover there, and uh, but their their uh, data in that case le- uh, lag. But um, so I think we're going to you know uh, level out to kind of a flat line for manufacturing tied to uh, uh, weak exports for uh, weak demand for U.S. exports, and apparently a housing sector that is as long as the job market goes up and or employment. We also had job openings. Uh, today, the Jolts report, and that showed a significant uh, rise in job openings. Those had been lagging this year. Those had been coming down, and now all of a sudden they're coming back up and m- moving ahead by about 1.5 million now, seven and a half to roughly six, seven and a half million openings to roughly six million people looking for work, and that and and, and so that's also inflationary. But we really haven't seen any inflation, but it's still, in theory, um, an inflationary. Um, thing and you never know if it'll pop up. We have this huge government spending, and that's also inflationary. And um, but we'll have to see how it goes. Uh, but uh, and then we also have the political situation. I don't know if the you know the impeachment has had no impact. What's uh, I can see on the markets, and certainly none on economic data. So, um, but you know, overall, you know, the economics, uh, even though we're getting a little bit of a, a pop higher in the last few weeks, uh, you know, uh, the year itself wasn't that spectacularly strong, 2019. And the markets are acting like it was spectacularly strong. So <laughs> we'll see how, we'll see how that plays out next year. All right. Well, talking of not spectacularly strong, I suppose that's a, a logical segue into Europe. Um, I guess I should kick off with the politics first and what proved to be um, a substantial victory for the Conservatives under Boris Johnson in last Thursday's general election. So in a nutshell, um, he won with a majority of fully 80 seats, which, if anything, was certainly at the, the upper end of expectations. And, and to be honest, I think, you know, quite considerably above what most people were anticipating. We saw the power to rally quite strongly on the back of that. And and why is that? Well, it comes down to the fact that the expectation now is that we will get Brexit going through, which may not be a good thing as far as the pound's concerned. But Johnson at least has such a big majority now that it's no longer going to be the case that we're not sure if Brexit's going to happen or not. To all intents and purposes, it seems now that Brexit will be happening um, at the end of January, which is under the current timetable. Indeed, he'll be introducing, um, well, an 
amended version of his withdrawal bill, which has already been agreed with the EU, as expected to uh, go through Parliament starting for voting on this Friday. Now, we did say, say we saw this big rally initially, and it's got to be said, part of that, I think a big part of that in the pound was, was just simply because we didn't see the Labour government winning because there were some real investor concerns about the prospects of domestic Labour policies um, with, re, with renationalisation of industries and the like, upsetting the UK economy. Um, but what we have certainly seen since the pounds rally is, well, to be honest, they marched it up and they've marched it back down again. And as we record this podcast, the pound is actually slightly lower against the dollar and indeed significantly lower against the euro than it was before the results came out. And this really is a reflection of the fact that if anyone thought that Brexit was all over as a result of the election, and well, I'm afraid you've got to think again. The key things here to remember, of course, is the fact that even if the UK does effectively lead the European Union in January next year, it's going to leave at this stage without a trade deal. It has until the end of 2020 to sort out its new trading relationship with the European Union. Now, the thing which has really spooked markets is two things. One, the realisation that trying to get a trade agreement through within the space of just, what, 11 months is, well, pretty well unlikely, unless it's going to be some kind of you know, very sort of nebulous type thing without any real teeth to it. And two, Johnson has decided just to prove the point that he's determined that his Brexit is all done, done and finished with. He's going to introduce uh, a new amendment to his bill, which will effectively mean that the UK has to leave with or without a deal by the back end of next year. So as things currently stand, assuming he gets his legislation through, which now seems certain because he has his socking great majority in the Commons, then if we get to December 2020 and they're still talking about trading deals and nothing's been sorted out under Johnson's rules, we're going to be leaving anyway. So all of a sudden, we're back now down to the possibility, oh, look, it could be a hard Brexit after all. So I think, you know, crucial to where the pound's going to be trading during the course of at least the early months of next year, if not all of next year, is going to be what on the earth happens in terms of you know, the trade deals that we're trying to sort out between the UK and the European Union. Um, what else can we say? Well, in terms of um, the implications of this elsewhere for policy, well, we've got a Bank of England meeting um, on this Thursday, the last one for the uh, the MPC for, for 2019. The good news for them, of course, is that, well, at least the election uncertainty is out the way. They now know, you know who's going to be in situ um, at number 10 Downing Street over the course of the next four, probably five years. Um, what they don't know, though, of course, is still what any kind of trading relationship is going to look like. And indeed, they're still not too sure at this stage what the fiscal policy of new government is going to be. Now, if we do see uh, the Johnson team living up to their promises of what would be a significant increase in government spending over the course of the next few years, then fiscal policy in the UK is going to be loosened significantly. And were that to be the case, then clearly it's going to very much reduce the chances of any kind of cutting UK interest rates. And indeed, it could certainly increase the possibility of UK rates going up again. Indeed, it's worth remembering that uh, the Bank of England's central case economic scenario that they modified a little bit at the, like, their last meeting in November assumed that the UK would leave the EU, so Brexit would happen, and that we would get a trade deal between the UK and the EU going forward. Now, at the moment, of course, that is still very much the possibility. Um, and under that scenario, the bank had this tightening bias. So the likelihood is, I think, come Thursday, we're going to see you know, the bank again reiterating that there's still a lot of uncertainty out there but they still think that interest rates are more likely to go up than they are 
to go down. But this at the same time that the uh, data coming out of the UK isn't so isn't so strong. No, data coming out of Europe at the moment, as I said, we sort of coming into the spiel, um, is really still very disappointing. Um, in terms of the, we've had our, our flash PMIs, which came out on Monday. As far as the UK was concerned, uh, you know, this headline composite output index, the, the GDP proxy, if you like, was just 48.5. That was down from 49.3 in November, and really taken at face value means that uh, uh, GDP in the fourth quarter in the UK is going to struggle to keep its head above water. Um, we've had today the labour market figures, which in many ways are not too different from yours in the sense that they suggest that the labour market on the whole is still quite tight and unemployment rates are still historically very low. But we are now seeing and we have seen a fairly sharp deceleration in wages growth. And it was wages which in the past, uh, the acceleration we saw during the summer months, that the hawks on the MPC started getting agitated about. And that's when all this talk about higher interest rates, they really began to gain some sort of momentum. So, I mean, I mean, you're quite right. If you just stand back, ignore Brexit and the way what might or might not happen to UK economic policy going forward, purely on the basis of the current data at the moment anyway, yeah, it really looks if the UK is struggling and really it needs some kind of economic boost if we're, we're not potentially going to fall into recession. Um, now, it's not just the UK which is struggling. The, the numbers coming out of the Eurozone are, are really pretty well just as bad. Um, of course, we had the ECB's last meeting of the year last Thursday. And, and, uh, they, were, and they weren't very dovish, right? They were uh, they're kind of like the uh, Bank of England in a way, right? F uh, facing slowing economic data, but not um, yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. This is Christine Lagarde's first uh, meeting, and so I mean that in itself kind of guaranteed there wouldn't be too much coming out of it. Um, it's interesting listening to her comments at the press conference. I mean, she's being labelled and. Personally, I think probably correctly as being on the sort of, you know, the more dovish um, end of the, the policy spectrum. Um, but if anything, her, her talk was, yes, making plenty of noises about, you know, they're going through a slowdown. So, you know, policy has to be prepared to adjust, et cetera, et cetera. But she was also highlighting the fact that some of the recent numbers are suggesting that the slowdown might be starting to come to an end. So some of the PMIs aren't quite as soft as they were. We did see that bounce in uh, November inflation, which get that confirmed in the, the updated the final figures on Wednesday um, so it's a kind of time to take a slightly optimistic view I think of the figures but nonetheless I think you know if you just, if you just stand back and look at what they're saying uh, they've still got very low inflation outlook their own forecast suggests that even under the current policy stance they won't be meeting their price stability goals within the two to three year forecast horizon their growth numbers if I think have been revised down a little bit as well so I think you know as far as Lagarde's concerned, it's, it's more a case, I think, of trying to sell a story to investors. Look, don't worry, we may not be doing that well at the moment, but probably things won't get any worse. But I think from a market perspective, it's still a case of, well, look, will they have to increase their quantitative easing, which was just reaffirmed at 20 billion euros of net asset purchase a month last week? Um, or indeed, could they actually go yeah, still more negative in terms of interest rates? Um, just out of interest, I mean, we talk about hawks and doves. Apparently, Christine Lagarde would like to be regarded as an owl. 
which I assume says something about her perceptions of regards of her wisdom. But that, of course, remains to be seen. Um, the other main point, I think, to mention about the ECB meeting last week was that the new president did confirm there will be a major policy review. Uh, we talked a little about this on uh, last week's podcast. That is now expected to begin in January and uh, the aim is it will be completed by the end of next year. As we mentioned before, this will be a very much a broad-based, deep dive into what policy for the ECB should be about. As we, uh, as soon as we mentioned, it could include at least possibly a change to the inflation target, which would be a real biggie. Jeremy, yeah, I have a question about that. Um, I. Uh, traditionally, a dovish attitude was uh, for monetary policy was uh, uh, set toward the employment side of uh, a central bank's uh, mandate that they would help boost employment. That employment was the, the more important of the uh, of inflation uh, relative to inflation. Um, but with this new, uh, you know, uh, environmental thing, now that's not. I mean, that has a dovish. Sp- feel to it, but it's not actually a monetary policy bias, is it? No, I don't think it is. And I think it's important to separate out, you know, some sort of the, you know, the green, um, the green sort of, you know, sustainability type issues from what policy itself is actually aiming at. Um, we will be having this big review, as I mentioned, but uh, until such time as Parliament changes it, um, the you know the sole raison d'etre for the ECB is to achieve is to achieve its inflation target, which you know, of course currently stands at uh, close to but just below two percent. Um, so anything to do with the green side of policy that Lagarde might want to might want to introduce doesn't actually say about you know the structure of policy itself or whether they're trying to be hawkish or dovish. It's just means of trying to you know accommodate more the, the general sense of population and the, you know the need to actually address some of the issues about climate change and so forth. But it also implies that the ECB doesn't plan to give up quantitative easing or doesn't plan to be uh, buying directly, uh, you know, bonds directly in the market. And that's a step, that's a different step from a generation ago. Um, Anyway. <laughs> it is. It is to some extent. Yes, I think at this stage, um, the ECB is st- has always been trying to make sure it operates in the secondary markets. It's been worried about operating the primary markets because then you got questions about is it inf- is it undermining the constitution, which forbids it from actually actively directly funding government deficits, which would would, would then become the case. Um, but say it's early days yet for Lagarde, and it's going to be interesting to see you know how policy is framed you know over over the coming months and indeed. Years. Years. One thing I would say, she, you know, she's known as being a very good communicator, uh, probably rather more so than her predecessor, Mario Draghi. And to that extent, it may be perhaps a little bit easier, well, say to read between the lines, perhaps we won't have to read between the lines quite so much as we have in the past anyway. Um, what else should I mention from Europe? Really, I suppose, quickest on the, the Swiss National Bank, which, of course, had their last policy meeting of the year uh, last week as well. No no changes there. Need No surprises there. So their key policy rate is still at minus 0.75%. The, the cross rate, the euro uh, Swiss franc cross rate remains pretty un- unchanged over the course of the last few weeks. If anything, I think you've still got to say that the next move in Swiss franc rates would be down simply because even though the cross rate hasn't moved, it's far too strong as far as the SMB is concerned. So at this stage, you know, they're keeping their powder dry, but they may have to do something a little bit further out if we do start to see a renewed period of euro weakness for whatever reason. Um, right. 
Um, round off, I suppose, on a slightly better note, we've had some um, more upbeat figures coming out of China. Uh, retail sales in November up 8% year on year. Uh, that compares with 7.2% in October. Uh, and that unwinds most of the slowdown we saw in that month. Industrial production as well, that was up 6.2% on the year after 47 And that was its best figure since June. So at least it perhaps means that you know, financial markets be hoping that the worst of the slowdown taking place in China may be behind us. Clearly, this does not um, exactly give a, a new indication of trend, but it could offer hope that things are starting to turn around a little bit there. Um, and Bank of Japan, the last of the big central banks, uh, they'll be meeting on Wednesday and no change seen coming out of them either as we move into 2020. Mr. Pender, anything else we should yes. be talking about? No, I think we covered it. Uh, it's interesting. China was the big news at the beginning of the week. Um, and it's, as you say, it's, uh, you know, it, it marks uh, um, a leveling off uh, in the slowdown. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if that holds. But the fixed a asset uh, investment uh, continued to be flat. So um, it, not all the news was was uh, yeah. uh, was, was that great. But um, we'll see, you know. Yeah, we live in hope, if not necessarily expectation. All right, then. So that's it for now. Um, from Mark and myself, thanks, as always, for listening. And on behalf of the whole Econoday team, we'd like to wish you all a very happy festive season and a profitable new year. We'll be back early in 2020 with a look at some of the themes that might be shaping financial market trends over coming months. But in the interim, as ever, Econoday's global economic calendar will be up and running with all the latest market moving data and events. We'll see you next year. <laughs>